this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, I think that um, treating liver cancer is um, an evolving and complex uh, endeavor that involves many different players um, and including the patient. And I think what Jen just said about educating the patient, um, if they are kind of a borderline patient or their or their um, tumor seems to be borderline, and giving them all the information that they can um, use to make an educated decision for themselves so that we're not here paternalistically as this uh, liver tumor board who comes in and tells the patient, now you will undergo this. We make our recommendation and then we tell the patient all the information that um, that we have gathered. Patients become much more active in their own health care and can accept the reality of what's happening to them in a much um, more tangible way. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. If you haven't heard from an earlier podcast, I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. For those of you who are listening, uh, on the day of this recording, it's May 10th, that's Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to all of our moms who are listening, and a special happy Mother's Day to my mom, Nancy Beck, incredible woman. Love you, mom. I doubt she's a listener, but I'll tell her to cue up this one. Um, Today, we have a great episode lined up. Before we get to the topic, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Trisalis. Trisalis Life Sciences is dedicated to improving patient outcomes in HCC and other highly intractable solid tumors. Trisalis infusion systems have the potential to deliver diagnostic therapeutic agents, and immunostimulants directly into the tumor vasculature, powered by its proprietary pressure-enabled drug delivery approach with smart valve technology to improve the distribution and penetration of therapy in solid tumors. Let's get started. I'm happy to introduce our two guests today, Dr. Jennifer Baruman and Dr. Isabel Newton. Uh, guys, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Excited so, to be here. Good to have you. Good to have you. So before we introduce the topic, um, can I just ask both of you guys to introduce yourselves and uh, tell us a little bit about um, what kind of physician you are and a little bit about your practice? Jennifer, we'll start with you. Sure. So I went to medical school at Tulane in New Orleans and did surgery residency afterwards here at University of California, San Diego. Then I did a fellowship in abdominal transplantation at Stanford University up in Palo Alto. And then was fortunate enough to get a job back here uh, doing transplants. So we do uh, liver and kidney transplant in adults, as well as hepatobiliary surgery and general surgery, mainly in patients who have cirrhosis. And I do the pediatric kidney transplants at the Children's Hospital here. I'm the surgical director of the pediatric kidney transplant. Okay, excellent. And Isabel, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Um, so I'm Isabel Newton. I'm an interventional radiologist in practice in San Diego. Um, I primarily practice at the VA, um, but I also have an appointment at the university. Okay. Awesome. So today our topic is going to be about hepatocellular carcinoma and within HCC, specifically what we're talking about as Jen alluded to bridging to transplant. Um, for our audience, our discussion today is partly connected to a paper uh, that came out this year in April out of the uh, Annals of Surgery. 
Name of the paper is Pathologic Response to Pre-Transplant Local-Regional Therapy is Predictive of Patient Outcome After Liver Transplantation for Hepatocellular Carcinoma Analysis from the U.S. Multicenter HCC Transplant Consortium. Um, guys, we will link to this in the show notes, um, but if you want to Google it, um, just play back what I said. Isabel, can you talk a little bit about um, your practice and your HCC population and bridge and bridging to transplant and how that kind of fills in uh, to your clinical practice? Sure. So um, I specialize or I concentrate in the treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma uh, at the VA and our patient population is largely um, an older one, um, mostly male, and uh, many have had uh, a past of hepatitis C or polysubstance abuse or um, fatty liver disease. I work uh, closely with the members of our liver tumor board, um, which is comprised of a multidisciplinary team that includes Jen Baruman, who's um, uh, with us today. And um, this is the only liver tumor board that um, I know of that's led by um, interventional radiology. So we really get a front row view of all the patients who are referred to the VA um, with hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, We discuss these um, with everyone who's present at the um, liver tumor board, which includes hepatology, uh, medical oncology, radiation oncology, um, surgery, and also the transplantation um, team. And um, as a result of those conversations, um, we make decisions about management and treatment together. So that's generally how we um, organize our practice. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about your clinical practice and how it relates to HCC and the uh, specifically that subcategory of patients who are bridging to transplant? Sure. So in our clinical practice, we do surgical resections for HCC in patients who are candidates. And in patients who are not candidates for surgical resection, we'll refer them for transplant, which is also us. Uh, For those patients, we assess their tumor. We assess them for potential metastatic disease, looking at their alpha-fetoprotein levels, We also do a chest CT and a bone scan to make sure that there's no evidence of metastatic disease with the HCC. And in patients who are good candidates for transplant socially and from other standpoints, then we refer them for transplant. Because there is a six-month waiting period um, between the time you'll actually get the exception points on the list for transplant, but between the from the time you get listed, we'll refer those patients for local regional therapy. And that's where we'll send them to interventional radiology or um, radiation oncology to get treatment for their tumors in the meantime. And that's in patients who are not candidates for surgical resection. Of uh, going a little bit uh, deeper into uh, that topic, how many patients roughly or an estimate of the number of patients end up in the bridge to transplant category? You know, those who aren't uh, candidates for surgical resection or aren't candidates for transplant itself. For patients that we get with tumor um, who aren't surgical resection candidates, those patients are pretty much all going to get referred to radiology at some point. If they have metastatic disease and there's no point in treating just their liver disease, then they're not going to get referred. But pretty much every patient that we have with a tumor is presented at a tumor board and gets the input of radiology for a local regional type of therapy. What they get depends on the tumor size and the tumor location, and that's a lot of which we discussed with interventional radiology at the time. Um, in order to be a candidate for transplant, I should add, too, that those patients have to meet what we call the Milan criteria with their tumor. 
meaning they have one tumor that's less than five centimeters or three tumors that are each less than three centimeters. Uh, patients who are beyond those criteria, we do not uh, refer to transplant unless they can be what's called downstage, which means that the treatment would reduce the size of the tumor. Those patients get referred for transplant because beyond those criteria, the risk of recurrence for the cancer is really high. So that's why we don't transplant those patients, um, because if you have recurrence of your cancer and you're on immunosuppression, your cancer will be worse than it would have been if you were not. The patients who only have liver disease um, with um, tumors in the liver that are not candidates for transplant, those patients are going to go to IR for treatments. And Isabel treats a lot of those patients um, with recurrent tastes or other procedures that will keep those tumors at bay while they're trying to get treatment. Absolutely. And, and switching gears a little bit, so Isabel, over to you. Can you talk a little bit about your initial patient evaluation uh, with this population? Sure. So our patient evaluation process is um, multifactorial. Obviously, we consider um, what the tumor burden is on imaging, and we typically um, prefer MR for our imaging. Um, we look to see if the patient is within Milan criteria, as Jen uh, expressed. We also look at the lab values. Not all tumors express um, AFP, but if they do, um, it allows us to have another marker that we will assess uh, because if they if they have a high AFP and uh, after local regional therapy, the alpha-beta protein decreases substantially, that's a very good prognostic factor. Uh, we look also at their um, social situation um, because the different treatment options um, very much um, depend on how stable their social situation is. And our patient population, as I mentioned, especially at the VA, but in general, just simply because of the risk factors for liver cancer, um, sometimes have a less stable social situation uh, than other patients with cancer. And so um, that will um, let us know if they might be a candidate for transplant, which requires a great deal of social support. But even um, local regional therapies like um, Y90 radioembolization can require more social support within the VA system because um, despite our efforts to bring radioembolization to the VA in San Diego, we have um, not been successful in doing so, um, even though we've been trying since um, 2013. Um, we're getting a little bit closer, um, but what that means is if a patient is eligible for um, Y90, uh, they will have to go outside of the VA system, either in town, which tends to be the university, or they go up to um, the uh, Palo Alto VA and are treated by our colleagues up there, and they have successfully um, gotten um, Y90 there. Um, other factors that we look at are, of course, um, the location and the number of the tumors to see the feasibility of treating um, with ablative treatments, which are, of course, the, the best kind of we're doing um, IR type treatments because they are the only ones with curative intent. And that is, of course, if, if, you know, if the patient isn't a resection candidate because that still remains um, a gold standard versus ablation, although... I think um, in the future, as we start to look at the more um, modern ablative techniques and um, ablative techniques that are meant to not leave any islands of tissue behind, um, they may be more compatible when you take into account morbidity. 
Um, and so these are all the different things that we look at when we're trying to evaluate um, a patient um, from the, the outset. Of course, comorbidities um, such as um, uh, cardiac or um, pulmonary or other diseases that might make it difficult for them to undergo um, surgery. And then a big one for us is whether they have um, portal hypertension or signs of um, uh, you know, varices on imaging or if there's any question, we will actually check portal pressures because this could uh, potentially um, disqualify them for surgical resection uh, if they have portal hypertension. So we, this is how we view our patients kind of en masse with all these different factors. So one of my follow-up questions is once someone is sent over to interventional radiology, have they been vetted and discussed in the um, the uh, basically the tumor board you described earlier, or can you see referral patterns from all over, like oncology, surgery, maybe hepatology? Uh, Isabel, can you speak to that a little bit? In the past, before we successfully launched our liver tumor board at the VA in San Diego, um, we would get referrals from all over the place. Um, it could even be from primary care. There was um, less kind of of a uh, of regular referral pattern, although, you know, the more um, common players were the ones we'd get them more commonly from. But now that we have the liver tumor board, um, we all understand that any new patient with um, HCC will be discussed and any patient who is undergoing treatment and has a change in the circumstances, either um, their disease progresses or um, they um, have a, a change in their um, social situation or anything else that would um, impact their eligibility for treatment, we bring them up and discuss them again at Liver Tumor Board. So at this point, um, you know, I really appreciate the fact that we all speak about every patient, even patients that don't end up coming to interventional radiology, um, who I never see. Uh, many times we will just do consultations with these patients so they understand the breadth of the options that are out there and to introduce them to all the different players um, of the team that will be impacting their care. Absolutely. Jen, you mentioned it earlier um, about the mandatory six-month wait time um, for patients with uh, liver tumors uh, for liver transplant. Can you tell us a little bit about when this was instituted and how your practice changed from before the mandatory six-month wait time till after the six-month wait? So when patients get listed for transplant in the past, um, if they have tumor, they're eligible for what's called tumor exception points. That's because the wait list is based on the MELD score, model for end-stage liver disease, which looks at the lab values with patients with cirrhosis and gives you a score. The list goes from zero to 40. When patients are at 40, they're really, really sick, and their risk of mortality is about 80% within three months. So those patients are prioritized for transplant. Most of our patients with tumor present at an earlier MELD score, and so they usually have a MELD score that's less than 15, which is where the transplant list um, starts to get offers for liver transplant. So those patients wouldn't get any offers for liver transplant at their native MELD score. So the tumor MELD score has changed a lot in the last six or seven years. And it's based on the what we call medium MELD at transplant. And so based on the different regions for UNOS, which is United Network for Organ Sharing, they're in charge of the list for transplant. There are different regions ranging from 1 to 10, and we in California are in Region 5, 
the wait list in Region 5 is one of the longest wait lists. And so patients were getting transplanted with MILDs in the 30s to 40s. In other centers, like in Louisiana, the the list tends to be shorter. And so it's actually easier to get a liver transplant with a lower MELD score. So there's a lot of variation in the country as to when you could actually get transplanted with tumors. So UNOS instituted MELD score exceptions, which were initially um, you got 28 points and then you went up by three until you hit 40. They realized that that wasn't necessarily fair um, because in New Orleans you hit 28 and you're getting transplanted right away. In California, you hit 28 and you're still on a list with a ton of people ahead of you. So once you hit up to 40, then those patients were getting transplanted. But that also meant that we were transplanting a MELD of 40 tumor patient before we were transplanting a really sick person with a MELD of 39. So they started to change the way that the points were offered out and then limited tumor points to 34, which also changed a little bit with the regional sharing, but that's a whole different lecture. Okay. Uh, and so then initially you get 28 and go up to 34 and then you'd wait. The, in 2017, in December 2017, they changed the tumor points to with the six-month wait period. And there were different few different reasons behind that. One was that maybe if you waited six months, tumors that had really bad biology, which this paper talks a little bit about, tumors with bad biology that are going to grow and not be... Um, sorry, tumors with bad biology that are potentially going to grow faster than other tumors and metastasize earlier um, would potentially be able to be picked out within that six-month wait period. And those are patients that shouldn't probably get transplant. So the six months might help you kind of decide who should actually get a transplant. And it makes sure that those patients are healthy enough and that their tumor is not going to grow out of, um, out of the criteria for transplant. So the six-month period gives you that option. That was put in place in December 2017. It actually seems to be a really good thing um, for the most part. But it does also mean that pretty much every patient who comes with a tumor now is going to get referred to radiology for local regional therapy in order to bridge them to transplant because no one wants to wait six months after you find a tumor to treat it. So... In 2017, they instituted the mandatory six-month wait time for uh, liver transplant with patients with um, HCC, and it was to tease apart, or tease apart those patients who may have aggressive tumor biology, uh, basically that that six-month waiting period would give you a chance to evaluate the, the behavior of the tumor and, and tease out more aggressive tumors from less aggressive ones, and, and, and subsequently, aggressive uh, biology is, you know, maybe there's... Um, less likely or more likely that they would, you know, have some kind of recurrence after transplant is, was that that's more exactly or less? Right. Yeah, that's yes. pretty much exactly what they, that reasoning behind that was. And part of it is also that they've kind of been playing with the way that tumor patients are getting uh, the MELD score exception points. Even currently they're changing it now to um, medium MELD score, medium MELD at transplant in the region minus three. And so that's really to try to prioritize the patients with high MELD scores who are really sick. And because the patients with tumors typically are fairly healthy otherwise, and their only issue is the tumor. And so they can wait longer. And with successful local regional therapy, then they can really wait a lot longer. And there's not as much urgency to get them to transplant as there was when we didn't have the option of treating tumors beforehand. Isabel, in your experience, did you feel there was increased referral pattern to interventional radiology for local regional therapy um, 
before the six month versus after the six month waiting period, like sometime in 2017? Or did you, was it imperceptible and it just felt like a gradual incline in, in uh, referrals? In our practice, there wasn't really a change in the referral pattern um, pre and post um, 2017 um, when they made those changes, um, simply because, um, as Jen alluded, for us, the wait to transplant is so long um, that it's not like we get so many patients um, achieving transplantation that it's an expectation that we're counting on. We're basically treating almost everyone like a bridge to transplant. Um, and so perhaps in a, in a state where um, there it's easier to get a transplantation, and I, I have certainly had patients who have moved to you know, either Texas or Pennsylvania um, in order to have a higher chance of getting transplanted, and they did. Um, in, unless you're one of those patients, um, you, you are largely looking at uh, a combination of therapies to try to treat your cancer so that we can extend your lifespan. And most of our patients, as you know, fall in the intermediate um, stage categories. So they're going to be looking at catheter-directed therapies, um, potentially in combination with, with other therapies as well. But that's been the mainstay of our treatment kind of paradigm. So you mentioned earlier, Isabel, that radioembolization was off the table at the VA institution in San Diego. Are there any other, um, so I guess what treatment modalities do you guys offer for local regional therapy? And did you feel like within your group that there's any institution or training bias towards one treatment over another? So even though we're not able to offer radioembolization ourselves at the VA in San Diego, we very much consider it as a tool in our toolbox, and we continue to refer patients for that treatment when it is um, when it is indicated. There is a bit of a bias, however, because in order to undergo Y90, you have to um, have a consultation for um, IR outside in the community, which adds at least one month, sometimes up to six or eight weeks of additional time um, to kind of process that referral. And then the patient has to travel to be assessed. And um, there are just some logistical things that are added on. So I think that is the only sort of added, um, I wouldn't say bias, but influencer, because we have to make sure that if we are referring someone for radioembolization, that they're able to travel, that they're able to wait. In truth, you know, very, very sick patients who are not doing well or progressing rapidly are not going to do well um, on in radioembolization either. So, uh, you know, in terms of prognosis, that, that probably ends up being a wash. Um, but with respect to everything else, I think that our, our liver tumor board is a very um, collegial one. Uh, you know, when we're done speaking about patients, we often share data or explain concepts to one another. And so there is no real bias towards or against any um, treatment modality. We really consider all the different options as important tools and we combine them in a way that is best for patients. We really consider each patient and their specific um, set of situations, their or their um, associate so, social um, situation, their um, medical history, um, this, the particular features of their their tumor, all to be a part of the um, data that we consider when we recommend a treatment. And then once the patient undergoes um, one treatment, we always reassess to see how they um, they perform because, as we know, the data shows that response to treatment, particularly it's been looked at with um, local regional therapy, 
um, is a very good, um, gives you good sense about prognosis um, after transplant, but also just in the long haul, how well they respond um, to treatment. You know, so you, I really call the very first, you know, uh, taste that I do with a patient or um, ablation, the getting to know you uh, procedure. And I tell them, you know, this is where you tell me how you respond not only to treatment, but also to sedation or general anesthesia, if we have to use that. Um, And it tells me like how you're going to stand up um, over time, because if later on we have to use a systemic therapy or we take our, you know, our friends from um, Radonk and ask them to help with the lesion that's a little bit hard to ablate, but we can give them fiducials or, you know, if we're so lucky and they can go on to um, transplant, we do get some idea about how they are, um, you know, how their physiology is um, in some, but also about their tumor biology in specific. That's fantastic. I like that analogy. It's almost, um, it's similar to like you're, you're going on uh, getting to the getting to know you period or like the first date, like, is it love at first sight with a taste or, you know, do you have to go on to, to see other, some other modalities? So Jennifer, do you have any preferences or biases with regards to uh, local regional therapies? I mean, not just specifically limited to interventional radiology, but radiation oncology or, or whatever else you guys see? So that's, uh, every patient is pretty much different on that end. And it really depends on a lot of different factors. And it's like Isabel said, you know, sometimes taste is your first way to go. And then you end up having to do something different because they don't respond or whatever needs to be done needs to change. Um, so I'd say we don't necessarily have a preference. It does seem like thermal ablation and the, if the tumors are right, um, are better, is better for those patients to get that. I think the paper mentions that as well. Um, but no, no preference. And I do have to second what Isabel said. I think I may have left this out of my explanation earlier, but the point was when the six-month wait period happened, it didn't really change much for our patients in California because they were already waiting a year and a half. So they were already getting sometimes three and four taste procedures. I think I've had one patient who had seven um, local regional therapy treatments before he got transplanted. But it has changed significantly for people in the South, like where you are. Um, there were probably a lot of patients not getting local regional therapy, but after that six month wait period who ended up needing it. Sure. So you talked, you touched on a little bit of uh, thermal ablations. Is that something that um, the hepatobiliary surgeons also participate in like, um, like open um, uh, microwave or either microwave or radio frequency ablations? Yes. And here at UCSD and I believe the VA also, we do microwave ablation. And so if it's something that radiology thinks they want us to be involved with, then we'll absolutely do like laparoscopic exposure of the liver. And then we'll come in and do microwave ablation either with or without radiology, depending on how it works out. I would agree. I think we enjoy a very collaborative relationship with the surgeons, um, which is nice because uh, not only do we have the opportunity to work together for difficult ablations, but if we're going to do something that potentially might need um, a rescue surgery, like if we're doing an ablation near the gallbladder, we um, expect that there may be a complication. Um, and it's very easy to get them on board and and supporting us, which allows us to do more ablations, which of course... Um, portend a better survival because it is a a potentially curative modality. Exactly. That's fantastic. And there, there just aren't any prettier pictures when you're doing like an ultrasound guided uh, probe placement uh, with uh, uh, an open exposure to the liver. It's fantastic. That's true. So 
Jennifer, moving on to the paper, um, I have some notes written down. One of the notes I have like is complete pathologic response following local regional therapy. And this is kind of a, a softball question, but it, can you explain to the audience why this is important? Like, why does it matter that that patients? I mean, if you're if you're talking about bridge to plant transplant, not necessarily downstaging, why does it matter whether or not they have uh, a good pathologic response following uh, local regional therapy? So there are a bunch of different reasons. So what complete pathological response means is that the local regional therapy we did uh, killed all those tumor cells, and we always say that there's no cure for. Uh, hepatocellular carcinoma except for transplant um, because once patients develop tumor they're going to develop it again once they have cirrhosis and the local regional therapy is meant to really kill those tumor cells um, in reference to this paper they only they didn't look at if the actual lesion that was treated had all the tumor cells killed or not because if the patient had other cancer um, then it didn't count as complete pathological response but the reason it's really important is that one, it tells us, you know, did they respond? Were we able to kill their tumor? And did they have tumor after the treatment at the time of liver transplant? Because their rates of recurrence of the liver cancer are going to go up. So patients with complete pathological response have less recurrence of hepatocellular carcinoma after liver transplant, which is really important for their long-term survival. It also gives us some insight as well, looking at this to local regional therapy to treat patients with tumors that are not candidates for transplant. And it kind of gives us an idea of who's responding to what and what long-term outcomes we can have treating patients who are not candidates for transplant. And Isabel does a lot of that therapy where she's treating patients with tumors over and over again who are not going to end up being able to be candidates for transplant. And it really can give them an increased lifespan. So Isabel, knowing that survival is is correlated to complete pathologic response. Has this changed the way interventional radiology approaches any HCC lesions from a technical perspective, or is it just something you you know ahead of time and you still have to go ahead and treat to see what the response is going to be? I, I think I think kind of the, the broader question is something that um, people are, are approaching in other cancer types as well, which is how can we predict how somebody is going to respond to this treatment? And it's, we used to do it very brutally, you know, in HEC and breast cancer and other areas as well, where we look at size of the tumor, um, you know, maybe number of tumors and, and things like that. But we're asking more questions about tumor biology. And that's what we're getting at when we say, you know, how well is someone going to respond to this therapy? It's, it's really a question of um, what is the tumor biology? And you don't want to waste a, um, you know, precious organ when they're in, in a low supply on someone who's ultimately not going to do well. It's not good for the patient. It's a very morbid um, surgery to go through if it's not going to benefit them and, and improve their quality of life and their, their um, lifespan. Um, but also it um, diminishes the number of transplants that are available to patients who might actually benefit. And so I think um, what, you know, we try to do when we treat with local regional therapy is obviously affect um, the most durable responses we can. And that um, if we can't do ablation, um, we'll do a combination of chemoembolization and ablation um, or uh, Y90 for segmentectomy or Y90 to treat more diffuse disease. Um, And these are all with the intent to eradicate as many tumor cells as possible. 
But until we really know what type of tumor cells we're talking about, um, this question of tumor biology, it's still a rather blind um, kind of approach. And it's one where we're finding things out afterwards. And that's what I alluded to with the getting to know you um, portion of when I I treat patients. Um, Really, I find out a lot about their tumor, a lot about them after I treat them the first um, time or first two times. In the future, I think um, we will probably go back to taking biopsies of these tumors and um, asking more questions than just grade. You know, now we we see an association between a grade two and a higher um, risk of recurrence, but grade is still a very sort of rough look at um, how aggressive a tumor is. And I think um, a lot of the research is focusing on parsing out which tumors are going to be the ones that'll be um, a higher risk of recurrence. And we won't have to use these surrogates of Um, response to local regional therapy or grade or even AFP, which is very imperfect because so many tumors don't even express it, um, to have an idea of um, what the response rate is going to be to to look to uh, either transplant or any of the treatments we have to offer. So that's an excellent point that I had written down in my notes to talk about is maybe a return to biopsy of HCC. Jen, in the in the transplant world, is there discussion about moving more towards biopsying these tumors and having a better sense of um, tumor pathology being reflective of aggressive tumor biology that um, um, people are thinking about and, and looking for as far as prognostic information? So I think ideally we would be able to biopsy the tumors to get an answer for how bad the tumor biology is. But in reality, there are a lot of risks to biopsying hepatocellular carcinoma, mainly seeding. Um, Because if we see the tumor outside the liver, then we really can't take the transplant either. So we don't do it regularly because the imaging is so good to see um, what the tumors actually look like. But the only real negative prognostic factor we can get from the imaging is the size and then really macrovascular invasion. So if the tumor is invading any of the large vessels in the liver, then they're not a candidate for transplant. So it's unfortunate that that's all we really get. Um, And then we can also assess with the TASES and multiple local regional therapies, we can assess how badly the tumor is growing. And we can also look at laboratory factors like alpha-theta protein. So those all give us some picture, but we don't really get uh, an exact picture until the tumor is out, until the liver is out and the pathologist has looked through the tumor and can give us an idea of exactly what we can expect. So during our liver tumor board conversation, we definitely do take into consideration some factors like whether or not a patient has hepatitis C virus. Um, We look at uh, whether or not their tumors are are in Milan criteria and their MELD score. Uh, We don't talk so much about the NLR, um, and we don't really... um, talk about AFP so often, except unless, you know, there is a a poor response, but many of our patients uh, don't have, um, or not many, but a significant proportion don't uh, express AFP. So afterwards, uh, you know, if um, there isn't really a change, if they still have an AFP, that's kind of what you'd expect for a cirrhotic. We don't pay much attention to it, but if they have an astronomical AFP after treatment, then it is something that we consider. But I have to say that in our liver tumor board, um, we rely very much on Jen's assessment to kind of chime in um, to let us know. So I'm going to turn over to her. So I think what we can really say about that is there are a lot of patients that we suspect are probably not going to have 
as great an outcome with liver transplant as other patients. And we can look at that. And none of that is really that surprising, like high AFP levels. We know that that tumor is probably more active than other tumors, um, or but it's not always going to give us the right answer. So I think it's so hard to look at the patients who are candidates for liver transplant and say we shouldn't transplant you or we shouldn't give you local region or we should just not transplant you. Sorry, it's really hard to look at those patients um, who need a transplant and say we don't want to give you a transplant because we're worried that you might do worse than other people when there are going to be individuals in those categories who still do really well. So right now, without guidance from UNOS uh, as far as who we should and shouldn't transplant with those characteristics, we just use it as something that we can look at to say how we think they're going to do afterwards. And we know they might be higher risk, but we think the benefit to them is still going to be there. And so we'll still go forward with transplant. And is it the same case with uh, patients who uh, progress through or have stable disease after loco-regional therapy and that it's, it's not a good sign, but it's not necessarily exclusion from a liver transplant? Is that fair to say? Yes, that's absolutely fair to say. And I'd say those are patients that we really are going to look at closely and watch them and take any little lesion in their lungs seriously and not give them a transplant at that point until we've worked up that little lesion. I think we have a patient um, who comes to mind um, who sort of fits that criteria, who otherwise is very healthy and has had um, basically all of the different treatments that uh, we have to offer with the exception of transplant, but is awaiting transplant. So um, resection, thermal ablation, taste, Y90, and we keep following this person. Um, and so this is the classic kind of quintessential example of, of bridging to transplant because this patient also had uh, some non-small cell lung cancer that was treated in the lungs. And so we're waiting for um, for them to kind of um, fall out of the window of time in which that would um, disqualify them. But we really do take each patient's uh, situation as a unique situation and consider all of the factors at play because you can have someone who has uh, what seems to be favorable tumor biology but if they are um, not going to be able to follow up with their visits, they don't have support at home, they struggle with substance abuse, um, they're still smoking, um, those kinds of things are, are very, very important to consider as well. And um, we work hard to try to get patients to the point where they need to be so that they can receive a liver transplant. But the sad reality is, is um, at least at the VA, it is a minority of patients who are able to kind of swing all of the different um, factors that need to be in place in order to get a liver and then also to get one in California, which is quite difficult. Sure. So just to recap, um, the big takeaway points from the paper, Isabel, when you read the paper, what, what were your big takeaway points that um, you came away with thinking? Um, I'm sorry. So the question is just, uh, Isabel, what are your big takeaway points um, from the paper that we've uh, read? So for me, you know, um, as an interventional radiologist who uh, focuses on treating liver cancer, I think that um, there are so many different ways of kind of approaching liver cancer patients and different religions surrounding them. And I, I say religion because uh, no one paper has defined the perfect way to do something. But since we um, know that it is, it is so important um, to 
address or to unveil the um, the response of a patient's tumors to local regional therapy, the way that we do the local regional therapy is very, very important. So some places will say, you know, we're going to treat three times and um, and then assess response after that. Others um, will, you know, treat one time, assess response, and then treat again and assess response. And it seems to vary widely um, in different places. I think what's important, though, is um, that when we do these treatments, that we are very careful to address all, if you're doing a, a catheter-directed therapy, that, to address all potential feeding vessels, to um try to um, contain as much disease as possible to sort of prevent the rebound of disease if you leave some um, cells um, kind of unchecked and to give the patient the best opportunity to respond by um, doing the most complete treatment that you can. And this uh, can involve um, assessing any um, parasitized vessels that are extrahepatic or um, looking at vessels that may be kind of unusual, like perhaps um, cystic artery. We've had that several times. And so from my um, point of view, um, it really puts the pressure on me to do the most thorough job that I can. And I tend to be in the camp of treating, then assessing response and treating again. And I don't have kind of a magic number of um, of uh, key mobilizations that I'll do and say this person is or is not a responder because I think some people show themselves very early on to be a non-responder, um, like the ones where you will do a very complete key mobilization and they come back and there is disease everywhere or there's extra hepatic spread. And then there are some where you treat uh, with key mobilization and then it's, you know, a black hole in that spot and they get very, very good response. Others, you have to kind of chip away at the disease. Um, you think you got all the vessels and you come back and other ones have opened up and um, you have to go in there and treat those uh, residual vessels. So I tend to not apply um, hard rules. And again, I, I can't stress enough the importance of treating each patient as an individual and um, each um, treatment as an individual treatment session in which you do your absolute best to get as much um, tumor under control as you can. So Jen, same question over to you. Um, one, I noticed you were an author on the paper. Congratulations. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, second, uh, what were your big takeaways from this paper and, and uh, the importance of it? So I think it's actually really interesting the way that they looked at everything and split it up into groups. And so they teased out who was going to be low risk for recurrence, medium risk, and high risk based on the tumor characteristics or based on the characteristics of the patients as well. And so I think it will allow you to give a better discussion to patients who are going in for transplant to say, you have these factors. We know that you might be okay, but we can't really say that you're not going to be high, you're higher risk for recurrence. We can't say that you're not going to have a recurrence after transplant. And the patients can potentially be involved in the discussion, decide whether or not they want to go through transplant. Transplant is a big deal to go through it as well. And as Isabel was saying, there are a lot of different factors you have to meet in order to make it through, make it to transplant and be a candidate. And so I think this will help us at least look at those patients a little bit differently. And if they're borderline candidates to begin with, we might say your cancer is also borderline and we don't think that we should potentially take you to transplant. So I think it will give us a better option, better discussion for the patients as well. So to follow up on that question, uh, Jen, 
We have a pretty large interventional radiology audience, not to say that, you know, we don't have other specialties that, that listen to us, but you have a, you have a pretty large IR audience now. Is there anything uh, from a transplant surgeon perspective that you've always wanted to tell a bunch of interventional radiologists and outside of <laughs> Isabel, you just haven't had the chance? I tell Isabel all the time. <laughs> so do you want to go for a drink? No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always have happy hour with your surgeon. Things will be better. No. Uh, <laughs> So I think really, you know, the take home from all of this is that for us, it's incredibly important to have good interventional radiology and as well as good communication with your interventional radiologist so that we can communicate, you know, how long is it going to be before this patient gets transplanted? How aggressive do we need to be with our local regional therapy? And like Isabel said, she has a great uh, philosophy towards it, trying to treat every bit of tumor that you see in that patient because that potentially is going to take them through it longer and give them a longer survival, especially to getting through to transplant. So I think it's really important that you communicate well and we talk openly about the tumors the patient has and how well the treatments are going and how high risk the patient is as well. That's awesome. seems like you've really built a, a collaborative environment in which, you know, a lot of different physicians have a voice and can participate. And, you know, I think that when you talk about the beneficiaries of that, it's always the patients. So, you know, congratulations to both of y'all for, you know, spearheading that and getting that going. Isabel, awesome job too. Thank you. Uh, Um, All right. Final thoughts, Um, Isabel. Yeah. I, you know, I think that um, treating liver cancer is um, an evolving and complex uh, endeavor that involves many different players um, and including the patient. And I think what Jen just said about educating the patient, um, if they are kind of a borderline patient or their, or their um, tumor seems to be borderline and giving them all the information that they can um, use to make an educated decision for themselves so that we're not here paternalistically as this uh, liver tumor board who comes in and tells the patient, now you will undergo this. We make our recommendation and then we tell the patient all the information that, um, that we have gathered. We explain to them and show them, you know, this is the treatment that was done to you. This is how your tumor responded. You had a good response or you didn't have a good response. I've found that when we do that, um, patients become much more active in their own healthcare and can accept the reality of what's happening to them in a much um, more tangible way. And in our uh, tumor board, um, I'm really grateful to have um, all of the members, but particularly Jen, um, her expertise in um, transplant and in uh, surgery is one that no matter how much studying I do or or, um, conferences I go to, um, I can never equal that. And so we really rely on her to give us the most up-to-date information. Um, And since it is constantly evolving, you really do need somebody um, who is a professional who can tell you, hey, these are the guidelines and this is why um, I recommend that we remember that, you know, liver transplant is an option or, Hey, let's not waste the patient's time because the, you know, the patient would never um, fall into, um, into the criteria for transplant. So for anyone out there who doesn't, uh, who, who does treat um, interventional oncology patients, patients with HCC and um, does not have a liver uh, tumor board to discuss these patients, I would encourage you to develop one and um, develop a really good relationship with your, with your surgeons. That's awesome. And to our audience, um, if you guys recognize Isabel Newton, um, you please should go check out episode 29, uh, interview with Interventional Initiative founders Isabel Newton and Susan Jackson. 
Um, fantastic episode. And Isabel, quickly, can you give us an update on what the interventional initiative has been up to? Sure. Thank you. Um, the interventional initiative or the II as we're called, um, we're, uh, you know, a not-for-profit organization focused on educating the public about minimally invasive image guided procedures. And, uh, we are known for our, um, docu-series Without a Scalpel, which is available on Amazon Prime or Amazon and other um, demand on-demand um, platforms. You go to Without a Scalpel um, uh, on the II webpage to find out where to see those. But we also do many other things, and we have been making short format videos um, that are partly animated, partly live, that um, illustrate topics in liver cancer and in kidney cancer. But most recently, we focused on um, creating a set of standardized consent um, aids. Um, And we're doing this um, with um, Eric Keller, who is an IR resident at Stanford, a very brilliant one, who is featured on, I think, your uh, episode most previous to this one, um, so where he talks about um, interventional radiology as a culture and kind of the evolution of, of IR. But he's very interested um, in ethics in IR. And one of the things that um, we try to do at the II is to democratize knowledge about these procedures so that patients who might be eligible will have the information that they need to make the best healthcare decisions for themselves. And so these consent aids are um, meant to do that. And we will be testing them um, very soon, and hopefully we'll have them available for um, anyone who wants to use them. Um, To our audience, uh, thank you guys for listening. We covered a lot of material, an important topic today. Um, I will link to the paper that we talked about. I will definitely link to the Interventional Initiative website and to any other things that we discussed uh, along with an outline to the show. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second, press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening. This helps platforms like iTunes, Spotify, whoever. Uh, It lets them know that our audience value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Uh, Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. It helps us out. We'd love the feedback. Um, So this about wraps things up. Um, Happy birthday to Aaron Fritz. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. And we'll see you next time on the back table. Thanks.